Hi, you're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Impact Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm Pastor Brandon, the church planter and lead pastor. We are a new church in the D.C. area that is centered on the gospel and sent to our neighborhoods, Northern Virginia, and the nations. Please visit our website at www.impactfxbg.church. There, you'll find our current meeting times and locations. Our prayer is that you are encouraged by the message you hear today and fall more in love with Jesus and others. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I would love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, there's an app for that. And so we'd encourage you that you uh, can use Version, which is a great app, or you can literally just Google 1 Timothy 2, and Google will pull it up for you. So it'll be great. But we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. Um, last week, Brandon did an excellent job of kind of walking us through the first chapter of 1 Timothy. And we're going to be continuing to—I've got to move this because I'm a walker. Uh, we're going to be continuing to um, to walk through that, uh, that book uh, as Paul is giving instructions to Timothy who is the pastor at the church of Ephesus. And so it's a really good time for us to talk. Um, now, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm going to share just a tiny bit about me uh, and my growing up. Uh, but I grew up on a farm. Uh, I know that I don't sound like a farm boy, but if you uh, would have seen me when the Hembrys moved into their new home and saw all of their raised beds, I felt right at home and started spouting stuff out. And Brandon was like, I'm not going to do this. You're going to have to do that. I'm like, I got you, dude. We're going to plant this here and this there and that. It was a whole thing. Um, but I grew up on a farm, um, and uh, I grew up uh, about a yard, uh, not a yard, uh, a football field 100 yards away from my grandparents' house. And so uh, I was your typical, I grew up in Mississippi, I was your t- typical barefoot Mississippi kid running up and down briar patches to get to my grandparents' house in the middle of the summer. Okay? If you don't know what a briar patch is, see me after. I'll show you what they look like. We also called them stickers because they would stick in your feet, and they were very uncomfortable. Uh, so I see some head nods, and I see some confused faces, so I know people who were in the country and the people who weren't, and that's fine. But um, when you grow up on a farm, there is a lot of practical instruction. There's a lot of practical instruction. Um, And if you grow up on a farm with a grandfather who served in World War II, that practical instruction comes with a little more force than maybe is necessary. (laughs) Um, But I remember um, growing up that there were a lot of times that my grandparents would try to instill in me things about the farm, about how things worked. Um, And it would often look something like this. Uh, For example, they had two huge uh, 200-year-old live oak trees in their front yard. Um, and they would shed their leaves, uh, not as much as in Virginia because it's Mississippi and we're on the same line as the Sahara Desert, and that's all you need to know about that. So, um, but they would shed their leaves, and so my grandfather liked to clean yard, and so he'd say, it's time, boys, grab the rakes, it's time to sweep. And so I'm like, we're raking, not sweeping. But, you know, you don't have those conversations with a 60, 70-year-old man as you're trying to do this. And so he uh, would get out there, and I'm, you know, the first time I really raked because uh, I don't care about raking, but whatever. And so we're doing this thing, and uh, my grandfather, I'll never forget, gets off the rocking chair in the front porch because that's how this works, right? If you're a grandparent, you let the grandchildren do the work, and you get to sit back and watch them, right? That's why we have children and grandchildren, to be able to get to that point don't know about you, that's my goal. So, <laughs> um, so we get to that point, and he comes off the front porch. He says, son, you're doing it wrong. And I said, okay, well, you know, chalk that one more on the chalkboard, but what do I need to do? And he says, first of all, you need to grab the rake and treat it like a broom, okay? It's why it's called a yard broom, like it's called a rake. He said, it's a yard broom. Yes, sir. 
So you're going to sweep the ground. You're not plowing the ground. Okay, you don't have to get into the grass and the furrow. You're not trying to plow the ground and plant something. You're trying to sweep the top off. So treat it like a broom. Okay, so then I start doing it. He said, good, and then he went back to his diet coat. So that was instruction from my grandfather. Or the time that we would go pick vegetables, and I'm sitting here yanking things off the vine, and my grandmother hollers down, there's Mississippi is coming out, uh, hollers down the line, Wesley, don't pull it, twist it. Yes, ma'am. And then all of a sudden, you start twisting things, and they come right off. You didn't know you were coming to church today to get horticultural instruction, but there you go. Okay, you twist vegetables to get them off. You don't yank them. So those were just some examples of instruction that I received as a kid. Now, there were other things. For example, when I got married, I had a whole new set of instructions about the proper way to fold clothes, because apparently the way that I was raised was incorrect. Um, <laughs> There's some chuckles, you know. Uh, for example, towels should be tri-folded, not half-folded, like that was a thing. Uh, my wife and I still disagree on how t-shirts should be folded. I'm folding half and cover, and she says you fold in and around so that you can see what's on the top of the t-shirt. It's like, they're all white undershirts. I don't care what's on the front of them. Okay, yes, ma'am. So, you know, you have those instructions. Uh, when we were getting ready to have our first child, we would go, uh, the hospital did the new parenting classes, and so we had to sit through things where they showed us the proper way to hold a bottle for a baby, and the proper way to do a diaper change, or to swaddle, and so then we go home, and people for baby showers gave us swaddlers that you don't have to do that, you just Velcroed, and I was like, score, <laughs> we don't have to have all this instruction. And then, woe upon woes, I became a teacher, and so my job, instead of just receiving instruction, began to give instruction. And the thing that I've noticed with the way that people learn is that we remember the first thing that we're told. That's what we do. We remember the first thing, okay? And, and this, is, this is true. Uh, like even today, we're going to walk away today and you're going to remember that I told you a story about farming and then you're going to remember what I say at the very end. The stuff in the middle, you're going to be like, oh, you talked about some things. But I remember this and this. That's just how our brains are wired. Remember the first and the, and the last. But... What I know about that is that the reason we're doing that is because we think that the first thing that people say is important, right? So when you're in the conversation that's going to be serious, the first thing that you say is important. That's what makes it matter. And so Paul is treating the, the Timothy, and he's treating the church of Ephesus in the same way. He spent the first chapter telling them his story, and now he's about to give them instruction, and he starts it off with those words, first of all. So will you look with me in chapter 2, verse 1, and let's see what Paul has to say that's of most importance to us. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul starts with the words, first of all. Now, obviously, this is coming in chapter 2, so this isn't the first thing that he says. But he's saying, first of all, in terms here, to allow the church at Ephesus to know and Timothy to know, this is of most importance. And what did he say is the most important thing? Prayer. He says, first of all, 
in response to me sharing the gospel with you in this first part, in response of me telling you how God has saved me, first of all, the thing that's most important for you to know is prayer. And he says, I urge you to pray. And he lists out some things for people to pray. He lists out four things, but I think that we can kind of make them too. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Those are kind of some churchy words, so let's break them down into some different options. Um, There are kind of two main types of prayer that he says. First, you need to pray prayers of praise. That's the prayers and thanksgiving. You need to praise the Lord in your prayer. And then in the second thing, he says, make supplications and intercessions. Those are prayers for requests for others. So prayers of praise, prayers of requests. Make sense? Now, when we talk about prayer, a lot of times we can get us really up in our feels about what prayer is because it's, it's not something that comes natural to us. And there's a reason for that, and it's because we as humans are built to communicate. We're built to have conversation. We're built to have relationship. It's like a God and a creator made us that way. Chapter 1 of Genesis. Go read it. So uh, there's this idea, though, that we were created for relationship. And now we're told to pray, but we're told to pray, and we can't see the person that we're praying to. So how do we have relationship with that? How does that work? Well, that's because what prayer does is it requires faith that the person on the other side, that God is right there with you, and he's listening. So he tells them, first of all, I urge you to pray, and this is the most important thing for you to do, because if you're going to grow as a church, if you're going to be this body of Christ, then you've got to have relationship with the Lord, and that has to happen through prayer. Um, He also tells us some different things to pray for right here. He tells us first that prayers be made for all people. Now, this is probably a little bit different than what we would think, because when we tell people to pray, what do we often say? I want you to pray for me, right? We, have, we may have times of you know, prayer requests or we're asking for prayer, and oftentimes we are asking for prayer for ourselves. Prayer can be, often can become very self-motivated. But Paul doesn't say, hey, pray for yourself. What does he say? He says, pray for all people. Now, yourself was included in that, but he says pray for all people because all people need relationship with the Lord. And he says, I ask that you pray all of these things for all people so that all of them can know the Lord. And then he says that uh, you need to pray for kings, for all those who are in authority. Now, this is the one that people start to get "Mm," about because we don't like praying for people in authority. Some of us don't. Some people uh, don't like people in authority because we think that we should be in authority, right? Right? Maybe? Some nods. So some of us are still waking up a little bit. That's okay. We're going to do jumping jacks in a minute. It's going to be great. Um, But we, we don't like to pray for people in authority because we think we should be the ones in authority. But this is even more important for Paul's church, or for the church in Ephesus, for Timothy to talk about, because the church in Ephesus wasn't just dealing with a a democratically elected leader who they disagreed with, okay? They were dealing with an emperor who was literally trying to persecute them and turn them into human torches on the streets. Sorry, we took a, a left turn there for a second, but I need you to hear that. Paul is urging them to pray for the person who's actively trying to kill them. And he says, pray for them, pray for him. And why should we pray for him? So that you can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. And because God desires for all people to be saved, even the one who's trying to kill you. 
See, that's a little bit different to our ears as Americans uh, or whatever nationality we come from. It's a little bit different because in our day and age, we don't see that, right? We, we pretend or we you know, perceive there being a lot of that kind of persecution, but we're not at the point right now that you are literally could be taken from your home and lit up like a Roman candle on the street. That's where the name comes from. Okay. Um, we're not into that point. But yet we still sometimes have problems with praying for people in authority over our lives because we don't like them or we don't agree with their opinions. If Paul can tell the church at Ephesus to pray for all people, including people who are trying to kill them, that also comes to us. We should be praying for all people. And he says that you should pray so that you can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, we kind of broke those verses down, but I want us to talk a little bit about what this really is, because you may be sitting here saying, Wes, this is great. Thanks for jumping right into history lessons. Fantastic. But like, what, is, what do you mean by prayer? Why is this a big deal? Why was this a big deal for the Ephesians? They're a church, right? Well, they are, but they're a brand new church, right? So they didn't really have people who were coming in who were saying, hey, this is how you pray. They didn't come with that knowledge. They weren't born into it. You know, they didn't go and sit at their dinner table with grandparents who would say, let's pray for the meal. They, they didn't do that. Prayer to them was a very different thing. Prayer was them was going to the temple and doing very different things than what they were trying to see in Christian worship. Prayer was bringing food offerings to an idol and saying, here you go, bless my ship. Okay, that was prayer to them. God doesn't work that way because God doesn't need those kind of offerings from us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your grain. What he needs is you. And so Paul had to take them through this so that they understood what prayer was like. Um, because prayer, um, the reason that this is a first and most important is because prayer is one of the only things that is a direct connection to God, helps us to talk to him, because that's what prayer is. It's a conversation with them. Um, we've talked about prayer before. We're just coming off of a week of fasting and prayer, so you're probably like, Wes, we, we've done this. I've been praying all week. That's great. But I want us to talk about what prayer is because if we're going to move forward in praying and we're going to move forward as a church, then prayer has to be of first importance to us. Because the thing of it is, is that prayer is one of the only things that gives us a direct connection to the Lord. And, fun fact, is the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to do. It's the only thing. Let's, uh, I'm going to turn there. You don't have to. The verses are going to be up on the screen. But in Luke chapter 11, um, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, we want you to teach us how to pray. And so he does. So I'm going to read some verses for you um, in Luke chapter 11. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. So already we see that Jesus is modeling what to do, right? So this was a normal part of Jesus's life. He's praying. And when he was finished, they were very respectful, the disciples. They waited for him to get done. I need the disciples to teach my children how to do that, but that's a different sermon for a different day. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So here's the thing. They were living this life with Jesus, and they knew that John, John the Baptist, who was another uh, contemporary of Jesus who uh, was leading the way for Jesus' ministry, they knew that John had taught his people to pray, but Jesus hadn't taught them to pray. 
And they see Jesus praying, and there are these, you know, rough-and-tumble fishermen and people of everyday living. They didn't grow up in the temple. They didn't grow up with that. They went to Hebrew school. They memorized some scripture, and they memorized some psalms, and that's prayers. But, like, they're not the same type of prayers we're seeing Jesus do, so Jesus teaches us to pray. And so he does. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. But Jesus didn't stop there. We like to stop there. Maybe you have the King James Version rolling around in the back of your head from your childhood like I do. Maybe not. But this is a, it's a Lord's, we call it the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. And Jesus kind of lays it out. But he didn't just tell them words to say. He gives this in this little discussion about what prayer is. He said to them, which of you has a friend? Will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Okay, so he asks them this rhetorical question. How many of you would say, you know, would have a friend that if you went to them in the middle of the night and said, hey, I have a person who's now come to my home and I don't have any food to give them. Can you give me some food? How many of you would respond and say, get over it. I'm in bed with my kids. Okay. I tell you, um, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus' instruction on prayer wasn't just what to pray, but the attitude of prayer that comes with it. And I love what Brandon said a few minutes ago in our go time where he said, based on Mark's sermon, that uh, prayer is like grabbing hold of God. Because this is how Jesus teaches him. How many of you, if somebody comes to your house in the middle of the night, would say, I'm not getting up, go go to the store and buy your own food? Okay, We might do that for the first time, but if the guy keeps knocking, what are you going to do? You're going to get up, okay? To put it a different way for the parents in the room, when your child starts to scream in the middle of the night, the first time is we, for, we don't worry about it, they'll go back to sleep. The second time, I'm now awake and I'm listening, are we going to have to do this? And the third time, it's like, all right, here we go. All right, we're up, let's make it happen, okay? Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's you're in a meeting and all of a sudden your phone starts to ring. And the first time, you know, you just let it go because you're in a meeting. You're not can't do anything. The second time it rings, it's the same person. You're like, eh, maybe something's wrong. The third team, you're going on mute, turning your camera off and saying, what is wrong? <laughs> okay. Now, granted, I'm an older millennial. If you call me anyway, I'm answering, what's wrong? <laughs> Text me first kind of thing. So there's this whole idea, though, that persistence is what matters in prayer. Jesus gives them words to say, but then he teaches them. It's the persistence that matters. See, the disciples wanted to be taught this because they didn't know. And I wonder for how many of us the same could be said. We've come off a week of fasting and praying, and sometimes we may just take for granted that you know how to pray or you know what to pray. And so Paul gives us some in 1 Timothy, but I want to kind of lay out a little bit alongside Paul some of the other things that we know from the Scripture. It's just a really simple way to structure our prayer. Um, I think somebody talked about it 
in their testimonies. But the first idea is that it comes from a place of adoration, right? We adore God. Now, that's an old word uh, that maybe you know from like, you know, oh, come, let us adore him. Um, you often don't go to the Hallmark aisle uh, and see, you know, cards of adoration, right? Um, that's not something that we see. So what does adoration mean? It means that you tell the Lord how he's good. For our uh, love language people, it's the words of affirmation prayer, okay? Telling God how he's good. You tell him, you adore him. You say, this is who I know that you are, and this is what you've done in my life. And we can see this all throughout the Psalms. That's the prayer book of the Bible. We see all of this. All of them say, oh, Lord, you are good. You are great. You are the creator. You've done this. You know, and they use a lot of poetic imagery for it, but all of that is meant to adore him or to praise him, to lift him up. We can, next thing that we do is that we confess, and this is where maybe we stumble a little bit because that means that we have to be honest with ourselves about our own sin in our life. But we confess our sin. And if you are in Christ, confession of sin is you agreeing with the Lord that this was wrong. Okay? I just, I'm having this conversation with my kids right now because they will, they're getting in trouble for doing something. And then I look at them and I say, do you understand that this is wrong? And I don't know. Okay, well, if you don't know that it's wrong, then our conversation stops because I can't move further with you. I'm telling you that it's wrong, but when you know it's wrong, you come back and talk to me. Okay, go take a bath. <laughs> that was last night. <laughs> um, but what it means, though, is when we confess to the Lord, we're agreeing with him that we know that we have done things that are wrong. A really a good way that I'm, I've heard this in the past and had it phrased was that we um, go off those, the two commandments that Jesus says are the greatest. It says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when it comes to confession, you're like, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm good this week. Then you start asking yourself, have I loved the Lord with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all my mind, and all my strength? Have I really loved all of my neighbors, which is every person around me in my life as myself? And the answer to those questions are no. Well, Lord, forgive me for not loving you as I ought for not loving my friends and family and people around me as I ought. God, forgive me for the things that I have done that I shouldn't have done and the things that I should have done that I didn't do. Okay? That's, that's confession. It's owning the fact that we have sinned. And then we move directly into thanksgiving because God doesn't just say confess your sins and feel guilty all day. He says, confess your sins, and then you're confessing your sins because you're giving them to Jesus, who has already paid the price for them. So there you move right into thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who has paid for these sins, so that I don't have to bear their, to bear their weight and their penalty. And not only that, let me thank you for this, the fact that I'm breathing. <laughs> let me thank you for this, the fact that I have a job, or the fact that I have a home, or the fact that I have food, or the fact that I just woke up today depending on where you are in your life. There's always something to be thankful for. And then the last thing is this word supplication. I tried to kind of make it work with supplicate him, and I didn't think that that would work. So I, we just supplication. But what that means is that we ask him to supply all your needs. The word supplication means supplicant. It's a person who comes to ask for a need to be met. Notice, though, in this structure... All of the first three things, the first three quarters of our prayer are about him, okay? We're adoring him. We're confessing to him how we maybe have messed up. 
or not maybe, how we have messed up. We're confessing to him how we've wronged him. We thank him for all the things that he's done and will do in his salvation. And oh, by the way, God, I have real needs in my life that I need you to work on, that I can't do. This structure is built that way, one, because it puts the emphasis on who? On him. The emphasis on prayer is not on you. It's on him. And we do that because we want to make sure that when we are praying and having conversation with the Lord, we don't sit down to the table and start immediately saying, here are all of my problems. Okay? God is not our therapist. He's our father. And we have relationship with him. And the reason I say that is because how many times, how many relationships would it last in your life if you sit down and you immediately start launching into all the things you need them to do? Okay? If my wife walked in the door from work and I met her at the door and said, I need you to go take the kids. I need you to go do this. I need you to go do that. And by the way, while you're doing those three things, I need you to answer the three questions I texted you about that you haven't responded to yet. Do you know what she would do? (laughs) She would look at me and say, I don't know who you are, (laughs) but I'm going to need you to start over (laughs) because we're not doing this today. Okay. That would be my version of what she would say. If you know Britter, you know other things would probably be said. (laughs) But the idea, though, is that that's not how we should treat our relationship with God. And prayer is that. It is our relationship with God. And that's why Paul in in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Lord, help me, Jesus, uh, in 1 Timothy says um, that prayer is of first importance because it's the foundation of our relationship with God. And if we don't have that foundation built on that prayer, if we don't do that, then our relationship will fail, will fail. Not only will it fail, it will falter and it will fade away. If you are, if you know the Lord today and you have felt far from the Lord, our first question is always going to be, how's your prayer life? How's you talking? It's just like if somebody says, I'm having trouble in my relationship with X or, my, or Y or my marriage or my kids or my whatever. My first question is always, how's your communication? Because that's what the foundation is on. So Paul knows that. And he says to them, this is why you pray. This is how you pray. This is what you pray for. And then he says this statement in verse, at the end of verse 3. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What I want you to see in this is that the gospel and our foundation, our relationship with the Lord and working through that is pleasing in the sight of God. So what is good? What is pleasing to the Lord? It's that we should pray for all people. That's what he says. You know, that's what this is. He says, you need to pray for all people. You need to pray for kings. You need to pray that we lead a peaceful and quiet life. And this is good. So what's good? We pray for them. And what do we pray for them? Well, he tells us in verse four that he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God and his sovereignty could just save everybody, right? That's what sovereign means, that God rules over all things. He could just do that. He could snap his finger and things can happen. I mean, Genesis 1 tells us that God spoke the world into existence. And I don't know about you, but to me, speaking a universe into existence sounds a little bit more difficult than restoring relationship. Maybe that's me. Okay. But he doesn't. 
Instead, what he does is he invites us to be an integral part of the process. God saves people, this is true, but he invites us to be a part of that process. And how does he invite us to be a part of it? He invites us to pray. And to pray for all people from the top down, from kings and those in authority, down to our neighbors and the people that we don't even want to think about. We pray for all people that they might come to salvation. This means that the gospel, the foundation of prayer, is pleasing to God. And he delights in saving people. He desires for all of them to be saved. That word desire is an important word because what it tells us is it tells us about the heart of God, right? If we have deep desires in our hearts, those are things that manifest into actions. For example, coming off a week of a fasting and praying, I'm really desiring a cheeseburger right about now, okay? That's just true, okay? That's just where we are. And I, w- I was talking to somebody this morning, it was uh, a, somebody else talking about what the Lord has taught them, and I affirmed them and agreed with them that the Lord has taught me that uh, food can be an idol in our lives, and we think that we need it, and we think that we have to have certain types of food, and so, you know, we're having to wrestle with some idols and some, some selfishness and some things. And I said, amen, and in my heart I said, yes, but I still want a cheeseburger. <laughs> and that's true, and that's good. And you know what? That desire will manifest itself later today. Um, for which I am thankful. God's desire is for all people to be saved, and he delights in doing it. So he makes that happen by inviting us to be a part of the process and praying. Um, Did you also understand that this is pleasing to God, that God actually enjoys saving people? Like, has that thought crossed your mind before? That really what it is, is that God enjoys saving you, It was something that made him happy to restore relationship with you. A lot of times when we talk about salvation in the gospel, we talk rightly so about the cost of Christ, the pain and the suffering and the death of Christ on the cross. But the purpose and the reason and the why is because God wants relationship with his people and it is an enjoyment to him to do that. I'm a dad. I've talked about that a couple of times. I've got two kids. Um, but one of my, my kids are kind of aging out of this stage, which makes me a little sad, because one of my favorite things is to sit on the couch and my kids to come and to crawl right here, head, head, and just to sit. We watch something. We can do something. They would, when they were little, they would fall asleep. Hearts would melt. It was a whole thing, right? Okay. That was one of my favorite things. It was a delight for me. And if I, sinful human man, father, have that delight, how much more so does God delight in me coming to him? So Paul not only tells us that God delights in this, he tells us how it's done. He picks up this theme from the the first part of his letter and he inserts it here where he says he desires uh, for all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And then verse five, for there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is how that relationship happens. And this is the foundation of the gospel, and it's a foundation of a relationship with the Lord. Because Paul reminds us that this delight God has in restoring us to relationship with him was costly. Jesus is our ransom. It's a price paid so we can return. Um, breaking this down a little bit, he tells them that there is one God that might be kind of 
You're like, duh, Paul, yes, there's one God. He's talking to people who believe in multiple gods, who could walk down the street and see a temple to almost every single one of them. So he's reminding them, no, there's, there's just one. All of them are false. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men. The word mediator can kind of give us, uh, in our, our modern English, it kind of can give us a little weirdness because we're like, what does a mediator do? A mediator goes between two parties and compromises them, right? Okay, that's what the mediator does. Jesus didn't come between us and God to compromise. God isn't going to compromise on his holiness. Instead, Jesus the, uh, is an intermediary meaning he spoke to God on our behalf and accomplished for us what we couldn't do. So he says that, that he's the mediator. There's only one, and it's the man, Christ Jesus. Notice that he says the man there because he's, Paul is reminding us that Jesus is just like us. There's other scriptures that we're not going to delve into at this moment that kind of gives us that full picture of how God, Jesus was both fully God and fully man and what that meant and how that worked. Not going to go through all that. But what he reminds us is that the mediator, the intermediator, the one who accomplished this work was Christ Jesus, and he did it as another human. He did it as a human because he did it for us, because we're human. Last time I checked. Um, And he gave himself as a ransom for many. Ransom meaning it's the price that was paid. And Jesus did all of that because God delighted in it. He delighted not in necessarily the suffering of Christ, but he delighted in the fact that you could be saved and have a restored relationship with him. Paul finishes up this little section um, with the thought that the gospel was not just for the church, and the gospel was not just for the Jews. The story of Jesus was not just for Paul and Timothy, but it was for all people. Um, the idea here is he says in verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He brings this up, he kind of says that, because he wants to remind us that the gospel is not just about Paul and Timothy, that the gospel is about all people. And this is why we're here. Uh, Paul was appointed this preacher, meaning someone who would uh, provide instruction, and an apostle, someone who could represent Christ for this purpose, to teach them in faith and truth how to be in relationship with God. Paul didn't stutter. He didn't miswrite. He didn't, you know, he was, I mean, it's a letter, so I don't know how you stutter in a letter. He didn't, like, do an ellipses or, like, get shaky here. He was very clear. God desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And not only that, but he desires that Paul and Timothy would be uh, instrumental in instructing people in how to do that. That's the job that Paul was, that he had, and that was the job that Timothy would have too as a pastor. So what that tells us is that salvation is not a treasure to be hoarded. It's not something to be kept to ourselves. Our relationship with the Lord is not something that we can just say is mine, and it's not yours. Okay, that's not how this works. Instead, we need to recognize that our relationship with the Lord is meant to be seen by others, to display, as we saw in chapter one, display God's perfect patience in us so that they too may come to know the Lord. But that all begins with prayer, each and every time. And if we truly want the gospel to be known in our life, If we truly want to know the gospel, if we truly want the gospel to be known in our city or in our church 
to know to our family, to know to our coworkers, our friends. Each and every time, it begins with prayer. It's almost like God designed it that way, because he did. <laughs> and he designed it that way on purpose. Because as Julie said, one of the things that prayer really teaches us is that we need him, first and foremost. And salvation is totally a work of the Lord. He's the only one who can change people's hearts. So Paul's message is really clear in these seven verses. Um, It's clear instruction to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, and it's important to us. It's clear to us. A first, infor- um, a first importance, the first thing that we need to get right, the primary thing that we need to get right is praying. It's how we pray. It's not how we read the Bible. It's not the right worship songs that we sing. It's not the right pastors that we listen to or podcasts or the entertainment that we watch. First importance is prayer because prayer is how we have a relationship. Hi, Pastor Brandon here. Thanks again for listening to our Impact Church Sermon Podcast. If God has spoken to you today or you have a prayer request you'd like to share, please email us at hello at impactfxbg.church. If you're local to the Fredericksburg area, we would love to see you for worship in person. But if not, please let us know if we can help you find a gospel-centered church right where you're at. Feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram and on our website, www.impactfxbg.church. Until next time, keep living the dream.